Surrounding yourself with love and the right amount of self-care is always the way forward. My mom has always instilled in us self-care and always taught us, you know, just from young kids, when you get out of the shower, you put on lotion. She taught us how to shave our legs. I like to prioritize self-care. That's why I get semen, a smart toxin for frown lines that only has ingredients essential for This is Unladylike. I'm Kristen. And that was, in order, Gwyneth Paltrow promoting menopause supplements, Kourtney Kardashian promoting leg shaving and post-shower lotion, and Christina Aguilera sharing her self-care tip of injecting her frown lines with a product called Xeomin. Listen, I put on lotion after I get out of the shower. My mom taught me to shave my legs too, but... (laughs) The point is, big beauty and wellness have swiftly co-opted the term self-care. And I don't know about y'all, though, but even the idea of self-care feels, ooh, tough right now. (laughs) A few weeks ago, I went to a sauna. I'd been really looking forward to it. I'd been kind of just like, oh, just like a ball of stress in the days leading up. And I kept thinking to myself, just get to the sauna. Just get to the sauna. You're going to sweat it all out, Kristen. And you're going to leave feeling so much better. And I got to the sauna, friends. And I laid down. I closed my eyes. I tried to quiet my mind. I don't know that I even lasted 10 minutes in there. I could not do it. I could not even release myself enough to to feel replenished or rejuvenated by the experience. And that made me feel even worse. This was the thing that was getting me through and it's not doing the trick. What will? That's where today's guest comes in. Dun da da da. I am Dr. Pooja Lakshman. I am a psychiatrist specializing in women's mental health and a clinical assistant professor at George Washington University School of Medicine. I'm also the founder and CEO of Gemma, the women's mental health community focused on impact and equity. And Real Self-Care is my debut book. And then I should also mention, of course, I'm also a mom. I have a nine-month-old son, so I am very much living the thing that all of my patients have gone through. And yeah, I'm really excited to be here. And why do you do what you do? That is a question that I have talked about in my own therapy for years and years. And, you know, I grew up, I'm South Asian, my parents are immigrants, and I come from a culture that is certainly very conservative and patriarchal. And I think from a young age, I just always was very, you know, as a women's studies major in college, I just always was kind of questioning why girls and women always got the short end of the stick. 
And I've found a way to do that as a psychiatrist. And part of the real self-care journey for me that I write about in the book too, was navigating that for myself as a career and finding the spaces that did align for me and then letting go of the spaces, kind of the academic stuff that wasn't really Mm -hmm. aligned for me, letting that go. But I think for me, like I view my work as a psychiatrist focused on women's mental health really as a form of advocacy. So I'm curious if you remember the first time you heard the term self-care and whether it made any kind of impression on you. I think that it came into my kind of worldview around the time of the 2016 election. When I was doing research for the book, I actually found that Google searches for the term peaked the night of the election, which makes sense, right? And once I heard that, then I started doing some more research and realizing that, of course, the term in its original roots comes from Black queer women. So Audre Lorde, right? who talked about self-care as self-preservation. And I think I quote her probably like three or four times in the book. And one of my favorite quotes from her, which I'll just read really quickly, for the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. So I think my conceptualization of it in the beginning was that kind of social justice framing. And then I started to see it blowing up everywhere on social media And I was constantly sort of rolling my eyes and really annoyed, which also then is also why I wrote this book too. Since we were talking about self-care, I want to talk a little bit about yourself. How has being a cishet South Asian woman kind of shaped your own relationship with self-care? And I realize that is a very big question. Yeah, how do I want to answer that? I think for me, That points to kind of my origin story of being in my late 20s and sort of throwing away the life that I had built up until that point. I was married. I had gone to, you know, Ivy League schools, was at a prestigious university training to become a psychiatrist and kind of realized that everything felt very empty to me. And I was really disillusioned with mainstream medicine and psychiatry. And so I left all of that. I I got divorced. I moved into a commune in San Francisco that was focused on female sexuality and orgasm and meditation, dropped out of my residency. You know, everybody was just like, what happened to Pooja? And I spent two years sort of living that new life. And at the end, came to understand that you can't run away from your problems and the same inconsistencies and inequities that exist in mainstream medicine are also very much part of the woo-woo spiritual wellness world. And through going through psychoanalysis, and psychoanalysis is sort of like therapy on steroids. It's the one where you're like on laying on the couch and mm-hmm. the psychoanalysis is behind you. I, I've been in analysis for about seven years now. I think so much of sort of my performance of me in my 20s really was impacted by being a brown person. And I say that as a brown person who had so many privileges. You know, my father, he's retired now, but he was a doctor. You know, I didn't have any student loans. I was a- The reason that I was able to drop out of residency was because I didn't have student loans, right? So I had the luxury of having an existential crisis because of all the sacrifices my parents made, right? And then like sort of the performance of 
femme womanhood of like, you know, that you're supposed to get married, you're supposed to sort of like, be a certain way and have all the things, right? Which in the book, I talk about that the game is rigged. You can't have all the things. You can't win all the contests. You have to choose. And like, even when you're in that mindset of like, quote unquote, winning, it's so toxic. And you really actually just end up devaluing yourself. My co-founder at Gemma is Dr. Callie Cyrus, and she is a Black queer shrink, Ivy League trained, one of the few that kind of like meets all those criteria. And she's a Dear, dear friend, we we met maybe two or three years ago, and I've learned so much from her about white supremacy and the intersection between white supremacy and capitalism and sort of like how this mindset of winning at all costs and sort of like performing your life as opposed to actually living your life, how that all fits together. All of that has led me to writing the book, and then also kind of informed how I think about now as I'm doing media for the book. Like, how do I show up in these conversations? And how do I be authentic to me, which is that I wrote the book Real Self Care. And like, I don't have it all figured out. And it is still really hard for me. And there isn't really like a magic solution. It's just trying to make the best choices that you can with the resources that you have. And hopefully also part of that is putting good out into the world so that the folks that have less resources can also access the things that they need and want. You mentioned the root of self-care earlier, but could you share a little bit more about the clinical background of self-care as well and how that originated? Yeah. So when I was doing research for the book, I was looking into this and I I thought it was fascinating that some of the first roots of the term self-care actually come from psychiatry. So in the 1950s, mental health professionals used the term with patients on locked psychiatric units as a way to bring back control and agency. So in reference to like you know, exercise or choices about what patients were going to eat or what they were going to wear. That was called self-care, even inside a system where somebody is on a locked psychiatric unit involuntarily, right? So it was like a way to sort of give the patient more autonomy or some small bit of autonomy. And then from there, the nursing field started to write about self-care in the context of compassion fatigue for healthcare workers, And then after that, or or kind of like along the same parallel line outside of medicine, that's when we saw inside the Black Panther movement, people like Audre Lorde and Bell Hooks writing about self-care. And that's what I think really crystallized the term and put it into the broader national conversation. Was there a tipping point where self-care became this like hyper-commodified marketing term that that we see so often today? Yeah, I mean, I think it really, you know, we talked about how 2016 was like the peak of the Google searches. And I think since then, it's been a continued sort of very consumer-oriented, commodified, capitalist sort of enterprise when it comes to wellness, self-care. I also would say in the context of the pandemic and the mental health crisis that we've seen in America and the fact that, you know, America really does not have 
an actual mental health infrastructure, right? It's so hard to find a therapist or a psychiatrist that is actually taking new patients, let alone takes insurance. There's so many deserts out there in terms of mental health access to services. And so it's so much easier and seductive when you see an Instagram ad for like some pretty branded vitamins that say that they're going to take care of your stress to click buy on that and have it delivered in 24 hours versus like figure out the maze of your insurance company and try to call them and be on hold for two hours. So I say that with compassion, you know, I think that because we're so under-resourced when it comes to mental health in America, that is also part of the story of why we are turning to the commodified solutions. What does the real in real self-care mean? So real means internal, sustainable, and unique to each individual. So real self-care is threaded through all of the decision-making in your life. So whether it's like the really big decisions, like who's your life partner going to be? Are you going to have a life partner? Are you going to have kids? Are you not going to have kids? Are you going to buy a house? Can you buy a house? What's your job going to be? Real self-care is a thread inside of all of those huge decisions. And then also in the small decisions too. So it's not stepping out of your life for 15 minutes to meditate. It's actually inside everything that you do. Yeah. One of the distinctions that you make is Self-care is not a noun, but a verb. Yeah, and, and thank you for like picking up on that because I wasn't sure if it was sort of too abstract as like a concept, but it, it kind of spoke to me as like, right, it's not a thing to check off a list. Like you would check off a yoga class. It's actually something that you have to embody and do as, and not say do, you have to embody it. And it's something that is more textured in how you come to the yoga class. So one person's yoga class could be really performative because they spend the whole time like worried about whether they can do crow pose and whether they have like the right Lululemon leggings. And then another person's yoga class actually could be real self-care because they did the hard work of like setting boundaries with their partner and, you know, being compassionate in the way that they talk to themselves during yoga and understanding why it aligns with their values. And that's a very different yoga class. So it's less about like the thing and knowing if you're doing the right thing and much more about the process that you take to get there. Well, let's talk a little bit then about what is often sold to us as self-care, but is not, uh, what is faux self-care? I kind of use, and I'm not trying to kind of like demonize the yoga or the massages or the bubble baths, you know, because we all need escape, right? And it's not helpful to shame anybody for that. And I, I love baths. Baths are great, right? <laughs> <laughs> I differentiate it into methods versus principles. And the bath or the yoga class is a method but a method only works if you are bringing the right internal principles to that method. So one person could go get a massage and spend the whole time on the massage table ruminating about their to-do list and like all the stuff that they're not getting done. And like after they get the massage, they have to come back to like 50 unread emails that they need to catch up on, right? That's faux self-care because you haven't done the internal principle work of setting the boundaries, working on your compassion, understanding your values, 
to actually receive the massage. One of the things that I hear as I've been talking about the book and connecting with readers is like the distinction of like when you're drowning, right? And sort of like survival mode versus when you have a little bit more bandwidth and you can actually think about sort of like long-term, what do I want for my life? going forward or in two years or in five years. And so many of my patients are like in the drowning place and I've been in the drowning place. And to be quite honest, like during this book launch, I'm in a drowning place right now. So it's like, you're just trying to like get through and tread. And that's what real self-care is. It's a sort of like opening up this space that like I can give myself a little bit of time and energy to get to the wants or like the dreams or like any of the sort of longer term stuff that takes strategy, takes planning. And especially for my patient population of moms, we just don't even have the luxury of the strategy or the planning. Yeah. I mean, that's my big question too. It's like, but, but when and how do we carve out that time and headspace Well, and that's why the first principle is boundaries, right? Like that has to be the first step. And I know everybody talks about boundaries. So it's like a little bit like, oh God, boundaries again. And I think that the reason that everybody talks about it is because it's so hard. And like, you still have to be the person to act. Like you can listen to as many podcasts as you want and read as many self-help books about boundaries, but then you still have to be the person to do it. (laughs) (laughs) You not only identify like what, faux self-care is, but also highlight this three-pronged seduction of it, escape, achievements, and optimization. So could you talk a little bit more about how those three prongs sell us on faux self-care? So these are from what I've seen in my clinical practice, working with women, and then also what I've sort of noticed in friends and in myself too, right? Like I, and, and the caveat here is that we all do all of these things and that's totally normal and fine. And like, we don't need to be ashamed, right? The escape is anything from like going on the retreat. And I tell a little story in the book about how a couple of years ago, I saved up a ton of money to go to Esalen, which is one of those like gorgeous retreats in Big Sur. And I was like, deeply offended when a couple that was there, they were like in their maybe 60s or 70s, they were like, this is our vacation every year. And I was like, no, I'm here on a retreat, you know? <laughs> and then afterwards, I was like, no, that's that's what this is. This is a vacation. Like, and we all need vacation. So that could be a retreat. That could be like a mani-pedi. That could be the bath, right? Getting away from all the stuff and not having to make decisions because it's the decisions that are so exhausting. The achievement is the person who goes really deep into wellness. So whether it's like the yoga or like training for the 5K and you have like your Excel spreadsheets of like all of your times and you have all the gear and like it's like your whole new personality right? And maybe like every year you have like a new different wellness thing that you're constantly telling your friends, no, you got to do this. This thing is the thing. And I was a little bit of that person when I was in med school and I started doing yoga. And then I realized that I brought like the same perfectionistic mentality to yoga that took me to med school. And it was sort of like, but wait, that's the opposite of what yoga is supposed to be. (laughs) 
The third one is was a surprising to me. It's like the productivity solutions and like the life hacks. So like the meal delivery kits or like the bullet journals. It's not that that stuff is bad because it's definitely useful if you have the means, right? It can be expensive. But this is the person that gets like so obsessed with the method that they don't actually use it to do like when they have the extra time, they don't put that back into themselves and they spend like hours and hours ruminating on like, well, you know, which calendar is the best calendar? Should I use Evernote or should I use Gmail? Or should it's like, it doesn't matter. They're all the same. Just pick one, <laughs> move on. Yeah. Cut, cut to me in the journal aisle of Target at the end of every year, like painstakingly going through <laughs> every single option they have trying to find the perfect one. And I, and I think, right. And I think again, just to like, also like dial back any guilt or shame that anyone that's listening is feeling is those things can be fun too. Like I love, I love my little planner. Right. And like, if you're at target looking for planners and like, you're like, Oh, which color do I like? And like, it's like a fun little activity for you. That's fine. Right. But also, but not expecting this planner to be the thing that is going to change your whole life. Right. <laughs> well, and what I found so helpful about the book is that it, it feels like self-care literacy in a way, kind of holding space for both like, yes, bubble baths are amazing. Who, who doesn't love a handy, colorful journal and with complimentary stickers, no less. But there's also, like you say, you know, it, it's, it's the internal work that's ultimately what, what we're trying to get at. Right, right. Again, like the methods aren't bad. The methods are fine. You just need to know what you're using the methods for and also acknowledging I think something else that really resonates in my clinical practice is that each phase of your life, there's going to be different methods. You know, when you're in your 20s, you have lots of discretionary time, usually, right? Not everybody experiences this, but a lot of folks do, where you have plenty of discretionary time to go to yoga three times a week and, you know, make your like, you know, you know, smoothies and all the stuff. And then once you have kids, if you do have kids, right, your discretionary time dwindles down to, to zero. And then you're beating yourself up because you can't go to yoga anymore. You don't know how to make that happen. So again, sort of like reframing this to it's not about any one specific method. There's a zillion different methods. You have to go to the principles to think more deeply and then figure out like what what are the methods for you? And that's going to look very different for you than it does for your best friend than it does for your mom. And I think part of this too is like recognizing then in each season of your life, there will always be new twists and turns where you'll have to be flexible and adjust. And you know, my son is nine months old and we're so fortunate to be able to send him to daycare, which is great. And, you know, I, at this point have like three different full-time jobs, I think basically, you know? And so kind of like figuring out that navigation of being a mom and launching a book and trying to figure out how do I do this in a way that is authentic to me and my values, right? That's a whole nother relearning of self-care for myself. And so, and I think that that 
hopefully I can model that for readers that are coming to this and in kind of moving through different seasons, wherever you are, understanding that there's different applications. It's not like a static, here's a set of rules and now you know it and you know, you're on your way. Yes. And social media, at least for me, does not make it any easier to dial back from the self-comparison or kind of achievement element of it. Because it's like we're all now just expected to perform ourselves constantly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was something that I kind of thought a lot about as I was thinking of this book launch and like how I wanted to approach it. And so one thing I've been talking a lot about on social media is like how much support I have, you know, whether it's like daycare or family that can come or babysitters as I've had to do book stuff, sort of the decision making around that, that I, I feel guilt. And then I'm like, you know, the same stories that I tell in the book of my patients who are like, well, why would you have a baby if you're going to just have a babysitter on the weekend? You know, like, I feel that too, that that's like this external toxicity from our culture that comes. And recognizing that all of these decisions come with a cost and a benefit and you have to know yourself and know what's most important to you. And then when you dial back and what you turn off and what you move towards, because social media is just going to give you, right. It's just so much noise, so much noise that you have to be able to kind of like connect with yourself more deeply. Otherwise you'll just be running in like five, trying to run in five different directions at the same time. I'm curious if you have any sense of whether lean in feminism and girl boss feminism, kind of that era, if that helped to sell what snowballed into this kind of self-care industrial complex. My opinion is that the through line between those two is white supremacy and capitalism, right? And the lack of acknowledgement of the systems of oppression and how people with darker skin or marginalized groups don't have access. Like being able to lean in is a privilege that a lot of people don't have. Girl boss is a privilege, actually. But that conversation did not account for any of those things. And if you think about like, you know, kind of like the Rachel Hollis's where it's sort of like these women who rose to such heights, but there was like no acknowledgement of how they got there, which is also why it was really important for me in real self-care to not only kind of like have a whole chapter about identity and privilege and systems of oppression, but also to acknowledge like the ways in which I've been oppressed as a brown woman, but also like all the privilege I have. I didn't have student loans. I got to go to these great schools and come out without loans. Like that's a huge, huge privilege. I have a white cis hetero part male partner who has a steady employed job where I can be on his health insurance. And so therefore I was able to leave my full-time faculty gig and start a private practice and like take a risk to become a writer and do all this creative stuff. Like, all of that is 
that like transparency, I think, was missing in both of those conversations. And I think maybe because sometimes people, as they're like moving up, maybe feel like it takes away from their work ethic or like what they've accomplished to acknowledge all the help that they've had. That idea that it's sort of like zero sum is something that really is a capitalist notion and a, something that's deeply impacted by white supremacy. I actually, I'm very, very late to this book, but I've been reading Cast by Isabel Wilkerson. Mm-hmm. I think Cast is also like, right? Like that's, America is completely a caste system. And if you are higher caste, like you have so much more access to success and to wellness and to all these different things, right? So yeah, I I think there is a through line there. Tell me a little bit about the four principles of real self-care and how you arrived at those pillars. It was really kind of like thinking through what I see in my practice and like how patients get from point A to B to C to D. I'm not a researcher. So like reading the literature about eudaimonic well-being and like meaning and sort of understanding how when we're connected to our values, this all comes from acceptance and commitment therapy act for short, which is one of the frameworks that I use in my practice. And it was kind of a process of elimination, you know, because it was sort of like boundaries are always the first thing. And that was clear. And then the values piece is sort of the root of where you understand your why and your how and how you want to be showing up in the world. The connection between the two is the compassion, because basically all I see in my practice is patients who just are so mean to themselves, Mm -hmm. right? So mean. And I struggle with this too. And that's like, for me, the compassion piece is the hardest piece. And then the last bit with power is like, again, recentering this whole framework inside the systems of oppression and understanding that like the critique, my critique is ultimately structural, but the solution is personal. And only when the solution is personal, does that result in accumulation of power for an individual. When individuals have power, if they use it for good, which that's a question mark, if they use it for good, then we can get to collective action and change. And I will just say, and maybe, I don't know if this is talking myself down, but it's not anything revolutionary. It's the same things that everyone is talking about, like these concepts, you know, but I do think that maybe putting it into the framework of self-care and helping especially for women and moms, I think, see that this is within our grasp. Like it doesn't have to be some huge, dramatic, radical thing. It can be as simple, and I say simple, but it can be as accessible as starting to set boundaries. And one of the examples in the book that I talk about is a patient who went through this process and ultimately realized that what she needed was her husband to take a paternity leave when she got pregnant with her third baby. And so she started setting boundaries, having these hard conversations. He'd never taken a leave before because he worked for small companies. He took a risk and asked for that leave when they got pregnant again. And they said yes. And that change went on to impact every other employee that comes through that company. Mm -hmm. She wasn't trying to be an advocate. She was just trying to not be so angry and miserable in her marriage. So when the solutions are personal and, and interpersonal, that's when we at least have a chance for systems to change. Yeah, I was going to ask which of those pillars you personally find the biggest challenge in working with, but you you mentioned the compassion piece. How have you kind of worked with yourself on that? 
Yeah. Well, I'm still in therapy. So that, you know, and, and I do take medication and, and I actually wrote last year for the times about deciding to go back on Zoloft while I was um, pregnant because I was high risk for postpartum depression and anxiety. And one of the reasons for all of these principles is, is that they all are, they flow together. So for me, when I'm connected to my values, when I know my why, like you asked me at the very beginning of this conversation, why are you in this field? Why are you doing what you're doing? That helps me with compassion because then I'm able to remember like, oh, I'm doing this because like I actually really care and like I really do want to try and change the system. And like the way that I can show up as a psychiatrist and changing the system is like this certain set of skills. And it might not be perfect and I'm not always going to say the right thing. And sometimes I'll say the wrong thing and that's fine. You know, like that being connected to the values helps with the compassion piece, but for sure I fall off and sometimes I'm really mean to myself. And I think that's also why I think a lot about the community aspect and what we're doing at Gemma, because I think that you have to have other women in your life who are also kind of trying to ask these different questions and do, do some of this sort of inner work because otherwise it can feel really lonely and you, and you do need your support system. So I have, I have my whole text thread of folks that I'm able to text and remind me that, you know, that it's okay. And so I think we all need that. Well, like you said, like these, these are kind of foundational tenets that we do hear about a lot. So why can it feel so hard and impossible even to enact in ourselves? Because the entire social structure that we're living in is invested on you in not enacting it. Like the entire American economy is built on women's unpaid labor. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, not to be like a conspiracy theorist, because I'm not, you know, but like there are really powerful systemic forces that make it so that it is a risk to start thinking this way. Mm -hmm. But the thing that I'll add there is that my mistake a decade ago was thinking that, okay, well, then that just means fuck it all. I'm just going to throw it all away and I'm just going to move off the grid. and, And that's not the answer either, unfortunately, because the internal dynamics are still there even when you try and start a new life as appealing as burn it, burn it all down is from what I've seen, burn it all down actually doesn't work. So that means unfortunately that you have to do this slow, less dramatic, more mundane change work. And usually the solution isn't going to be something that's like really sexy You know, it's usually going to be stuff that's like pretty routine. And there might be some cases where like a marriage ends or like you quit a job or whatever. But like that usually only gets you closer to yourself if you've done this type of reflection. It's it's usually not the answer if it's the first thing that's happening. Mm hmm. And why is real self-care also essential for the kind of collective power and uplift that we so desperately need right now. 
Well, that gets back to Audre Lorde, because when you're not doing real self-care, when you're not understanding that this is self-preservation, then you are enmeshed with the toxic systems and oppressive systems. And you're just operating under that set of rules, believing that at some point somebody's going to care about you or help you or do something for you. But that usually doesn't come. Or if you're somebody who, you know, has a lot of privilege, you might just sort of be upholding those hierarchies. And the people under you then will never ultimately be able to come up. So again, that's why this is about power and sort of like the restructuring of power as well. But I fundamentally do believe a more equitable society is one in which there's not so much of a gap between the haves and the have-nots and that everyone is better when it's more equitable. And ladies, this book really found me at the right time, like me in the work that I am trying to do with myself, my desire to live from a more whole sense of self and really identifying my values and why I do what I do. And it can feel like I'm just walking in a circle or just laying down out of sheer exhaustion. And I'll tell you something unladies have often told me, and it means the world to hear. This conversation with Pooja made me feel not so alone in that regard. Like, yes, everybody goes through it. Everybody has challenges, and it's still easy to get so stuck in our own heads and hyper-focused on our perceived shortcomings that we lose sight of our purpose and why the hard things do matter. And before I veer off entirely into a mini self-guided therapy session, how is your self-care going these days? Is there anything about self-care that we didn't get into that you'd like to share? Hello at unladylike.co is where you can email me. You can also DM me on Instagram at unladylikemedia. And remember, you can send over voice memos if you'd rather not write out a whole email. I'd love to hear your voice. You can pick up real self-care anywhere you find books. There's also an audiobook version available. Thank you so much to Dr. Pooja Lakshman for writing this book and also coming on Unladylike to talk about it. You can follow Pooja on Instagram at Pooja Lakshman. And you can also follow Gemma Women at Join Gemma. And Gemma is G-E-M-M-A. And if you care to, something that I would deeply appreciate is your support on Patreon. For $5 a month, you are not only investing in the longevity of Unladylike, you also get an extra bonus episode every single week, uncut interviews with some of our featured guests, and my undying gratitude, truly. Patreon.com slash unladylikemedia is where you can go, subscribe, join, support, feel the love, and listen to nearly 150 bonus episodes. They're just right there waiting. 
dive on in. The water is fine. <laughs> you can also follow Unladylike on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at Unladylike Media. Unladylike is a Starburns audio production, created, executive produced, written, and hosted by me, Kristen Conger. Aristotle Acevedo is our senior producer. Catherine Caligori is our associate producer. Our music is by Flamingo Shadow, Amit May Cohen, and Sarah Tudson. Until next time. What is the most unladylike thing about you? Oh, there's so many. I don't even know how to choose. There's so many. Oh God, my house is a mess. My house is a literal, like an actual, like dumpster fire right now. So that's one place to start. I don't make my bed. I could rattle off a huge list. So maybe that's that's one. And one other thing that I'll say is I decided on this book launch that I wasn't you know, because I'm doing a ton of podcasts that I'm not going to wear makeup. I'm just going to show up as is because um, that's part of my real self-care. So, yeah. A podcast network.